0: So what we're going to do here, folks, is go over maybe some treatment center metrics or things you would look for if you were trying to choose a treatment center for a loved one or for yourself. And uh, this is no easy task. As you know, we've discussed before the lack of regulation in mm-hmm. uh in North America has made this a particularly burdensome task for anybody who's trying to kind of sift through them and find ones that are, you've got ones that are on one side that are complete scam money laundering or, or just uh, there to fleece people. Um, and then you've got older institutional kind of facilities, like what's that one, Betty Ford, ones that have maybe, uh, are standing on a reputation of longevity, but <laughs> yeah, eh, when you look closer, you know, it's kind of the same old thing. They're still not uh, effectively tracking metrics. And so it's a difficult task. There are facilities that I feel are perhaps better for some folks than others. And I think it's very much dependent on your circumstances. Mm-hmm. Um, but we can uh, we can go over some of the uh, the basic things that people look for and discuss them kind of as they pertain to us personally. And uh, that's about as good as we can do because everyone is going to have their own kind of needs. So, yeah. And of
1: course, this is, should be prefaced by saying, if you have a choice, because there are many <laughs> people within our community who didn't have a choice at all and it was imposed upon them. And then, of course, there are those who are eliminated by virtue of how cost prohibitive these facilities can be. So if yeah. you had if you <laughs> had choice, if you had time to research, if you had money, we're sort of saying if, 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 if those things yeah. are in place, yeah, right? Yeah,
0: that's a, that's a great point. Yeah. Before we yep. jump right in here, assuming that everybody's got the resources to <laughs> actually pick one of these facilities. Yeah. Yeah. In Canada, there's there's a stream that's supported by our normal healthcare system, and then there's mm-hmm. a kind of a private tier, and there's some yep. overlap between. But the first thing we wanted to look at, uh, and I I felt was, uh, I feel it's important, is uh, staffing. So I guess we'll also say that, I mean, I, I've only been to one facility in Canada, and i would never gone back to another one, regardless of what happens and that is uh, Homewood in Guelph, and it was an inpatient treatment center, and uh, the duration was 35 days. And you, Corey, went to uh, an outpatient facility, mm-hmm. and I think you you kind of seemed to have a better experience than I did. Yeah, definitely, definitely. So, And then I mean, my that's... only other
1: experience would be that when I was in in nursing school, I did a little bit at a very old facility in the Fraser Valley.
0: Okay, so just to get another look at how maybe some other places are run. Yeah. I mean I've I've investigated facilities for clients and I've looked at I keep an eye on especially the the facilities that are healthcare professional stream facilities just to, you know, because it, with the uh, obsidian people always have questions about, you know, where am I going? What's going to happen to me? blah, blah of course, These yeah. types of things. So try to keep an eye on that, but yeah, one thing is uh, the staffing levels and the credentialed staff that are available. So That means, you know, do they have a medical doctor on staff? Lots will say that they do, but maybe the doctor's only there for a day or two and it's very difficult to get an appointment because the group sizes are so big. Other ones, you'll be able to get an appointment, but it'll be maybe a general practitioner who's just kind of cycling in and out. So there's a difference there where uh, bigger facilities will have an actual doctor on staff who's familiar with addiction medicine. And if you go to some of the biggest centers in Canada, anyway, they'll have a a psychiatrist available there for uh, diagnosing comorbid conditions, which I think is significant. That can be a a big deal for people because, you know, as we know, addiction is often linked to other mental health challenges. And then uh, whether or not they have a a accredited psychologist is important Mm -hmm. and uh, the other thing that places like to advertise, or at least if they'll advertise it, if their numbers are good, is the ratio of counselors to patients per group size. I don't know how important that is. What do you What do you think about about that one, Corey? And we're talking about uh, these are the uh, addiction counselors who uh, they have a a bit of training, but most of them tend to be people who've been through a, a program, so they have lived experience. And uh, then they want to give back or, or, or stay involved with the program somehow, or they believe in the program enough to, to be a part of it, that kind of thing. Yeah. And what do uh,
1: I think about that? I think, I mean, it really depends. It really depends on, (laughs) on those individuals on, and you, if in doing your research, you will likely not have access to like what the training of the staff is, but I think it probably greatly depends on that. And it also, depends on what the model, and we'll get into into this, like, is it a, a facility that leans heavily on the 12-step model? So, the counselors are just there to kind of help you navigate the 12 steps, or are they there? Um, do they have maybe maybe they're a university student who's interested in going into counseling or going into something within that profession? So, they've already got some, maybe a little bit of training in, in communication, therapeutic commu- communication, and, and they're they just maybe a little bit more... Um, Diversely educated, I'll say.
0: Yeah. Open-minded, versatile in their approach. Mm -hmm. I think uh, one of the things that, I mean, if you do end up going to a facility where it is heavily based on 12-step approach, as many are, it tends to limit the options for folks who, who, who really don't fit into that kind of paradigm very well. And that can be a problem. For example, uh, maybe you're an atheist and, you know, that tends to be a little more challenging when you're in any kind of faith-based treatment program, really, but specifically the 12 steps and, uh, you know, they'll try and get around that by saying that it's, that they have programs for atheists specifically and stuff. But ultimately that's, that's not how that specific treatment program was designed. It was designed as a faith, faith faith-based program and, uh, it works very well for some people, but it just doesn't work for everybody. So it's something to be aware of if you're, if you're trying to choose a facility, you know, and, and lots of them now will include the options like uh, smart recovery at least. And I think if, as long as you're going to a bigger center, you're going to be able to attend those even in person now. Right.
1: Yes. Yeah. I was going to say that. So thank you for kind of prompting me there that even, uh, locally, and with with I'll say when I say locally I mean within our province some of the 12 step facilities 12 step heavy facilities allow their their clients or their residents to one in the Fraser Valley here brings smart meetings in and um another one that I know of allows their their residents to to attend online smart meetings three times a week or however often they they like I think as long as it's not interfering with other responsibilities and things that they're supposed to be taking part in but yeah mm-hmm so that yeah, those, they, door, those doors have opened up quite a bit, probably compared to five years ago, I'm sure.
0: Yeah, yeah, I, I could see that. For people who don't know, the, the Smart Recovery Program is more of a, it's more of a pragmatic, cognitive behavioral therapy-based program. So they don't really, there's not really a a faith or a higher power component to it, as much as it is about looking at the way your your thoughts are affecting your behavior and and how your emotions are tied to your actions and and things like that. yeah yeah so the other thing about staffing that that I've seen with obsidian clients I I've, I've had a couple interesting situations where a client will be sent I had one poor guy he he somehow got he ended up getting sent to a facility for a very very mild i guess we can call it a, they they thought he had a problem with codeine uh, I'm not even sure that he did, but what he did have was a, a significant nerve pain problem that was not being diagnosed where he was from. He was working as a healthcare professional, you know, maybe 12 to 16 hours a day. And this was more of a case of this guy. He, he had a, a a really good, well, I don't know, good, a, a solid work ethic, I guess, but he wouldn't take the time off to see a physician. And when he saw a physician, they kept missing what the problem was. Mm. So eventually he got into trouble and uh, he, he got sent to a treatment center over east. And in the treatment center, he was able to, a doctor there referred him to a, a specialist who was able to diagnose him with the nerve impingement. And they actually fixed the problem that was causing him to be in pain all the time wow. so that he was needing to take pain medication. And he never had a, like, that was the end of his problem. He just- wow. You know, so it's interesting to me that, um, sometimes it can be taking the time. I've seen it a couple of times where the person just, especially with doctors have trouble with, uh, you know, they get, they're caught up in the work and they, they're working really hard and they don't take maybe the, you know, maybe it takes a two or three days off to get everything lined up so that they can get diagnosed or get whatever the problem is taken care of. And they don't do it. And then it compounds and becomes a bigger problem. They end up, you know, whatever it is, uh, alcohol or pain medication there. And then they get over there and they get the, they get looked at. And then, and then lo and behold, <laughs> they didn't have a, it wasn't necessarily an addiction problem. It was like a, a significant structural or pain problem that they hadn't dealt with. So yeah, um, being able to have access to a physician who can refer you to a, a specialist, that is something that I always keep my eye on too. If you don't, if you can't get that done in a, a treatment center that you're going to, eh, you know, it's just something to be aware of.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: Yeah. So the other thing, uh, I put down for staff there was whether or not they take care of, I mean, there's things they have like holistic coaches, wellness coaches, life coaches, dietitians, the more money you want to spend, it can, it can kind of get carried away with the, the number of, uh, specialties that they can have there. But depending on your problem, I mean, a dietitian would be important if you're maybe you have a comorbid uh, eating disorder right so these it's are kind of a that good you... sign
1: right like it's kind of <laughs> if there's a evidence of some support staff in place or some like affiliate staffing of 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 these specialties it kind of is a good sign that there's like some thought and care put into into like to me that says patient outcomes like we we're going to kind of fill out some of the other areas of your life and and help you like you said with a dietitian or maybe it's uh, a personal trainer is on staff something mm-hmm. that's going to like Round out the experience a little bit more, and it shows that there's attention to people's well being. I think.
0: Yes, you want to see that holistic approach, and you don't want to see a facility that's cutting corners. Like, <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, you and it, it doesn't take people long to to figure that out either. Because in any of the facilities that, in Canada, anyway, the ones that have been around for a while, like uh, Homewood, for example, when I went to Homewood, there was a a lot of talk about how the food there used to be of a much higher quality, you know. And then because there's so many return customers, <laughs> they can't <laughs> get away with just all of a sudden changing the menu overnight, <laughs> right? Because people, people notice that type of stuff. And that's usually yeah. a sign that, you know, uh, somebody's trying to make a little more money or save some money somewhere. And, and so that can obviously affect your experience. And yeah. I mean, to be honest, I, when I saw what was being served there I I I just I was kind of baffled like and then their kind of outlook towards food in general was well it doesn't matter what you eat as long as you're not doing drugs <laughs> and they would actually encourage like they had people they would eating bags of candy and stuff and they're oh yeah go ahead and I was like man that's I don't know about that I don't, you know, I, I do not agree that, that just subbing in the, the quick carbs to try and get through that spot. I don't, I don't know about that. Yeah, And then also curtailing exercise because the, uh, exercise facility was falling apart. You know, like these are things that, that don't give a person confidence in the facility. The next thing we looked at was patients. So group sizes, how many people are coming in at a time, what the turnover is like, what was your did you see it it was pretty small group sizes for your outpatient treatment
1: yeah i want to say seven seven people at a time okay it's a very intimate
0: group and you're going to know those people do they start at the same time as you then is that how they
1: yeah in the for the
0: outpatient program
1: it's like cohorts one intake for the seven people that starts on this day and you have to you know go through the whole thing with them
0: yeah yeah i think that's that's a good thing like they're I think it would be better even in bigger facilities and maybe some of them do this, but instead of just having a kind of a constant rotation of people coming in and out, I think it would be better if you got set up originally with a group of people who are just coming in. So you're all kind of at the same stage. Yeah. I think it prevents, you're always going to get those people who are just about out the other end and all they're talking about is getting back out there and doing drugs and you know, there's going to be different kind of stages and levels of commitment to the program too. Sure, sure. So I think starting out at the same marker, probably at least mitigates that somewhat.
1: I think so too. And to my thing, and please correct me if I'm wrong, like in the inpatient setting where you're living with these people, does it not create a, could it not create a sense of camaraderie and, and help foster some relationships there?
0: I would think it would. Yeah. I mean, Especially like uh, some of the facilities are not like you can pay for a private room, but if you're in a healthcare funded one, you're probably not going to get a private room. So that means you're going to be with two or three other people that may be at different spots in the program. They could be, you know, this could be their 10th time through. This could be their first time through. They could be uh, very excited about getting better. Uh, they could be, there because their wife is forcing them under Mm -hmm. duress or threat of divorce i mean there's all Mm -hmm. sorts of different attitudes i guess do you remember how
1: many people were there when you when you were at inpatient
0: it's hard to say i mean it's there's just i don't know hundreds
1: (laughs) it was that big of a facility there are that many there
0: yeah because there's there's people at all stages going through and then there's they've got a ptsd program there they've got uh Uh, eating disorder program there. They've got uh, other mental health disorders that are kind of segmented, but also involved. I don't know, maybe in the, like in our daily, when we would uh, like all eat together, maybe there was like 50 to 70. Wow. So huge, huge. So it'd take a while to get to know what was going on. Right. And Mm -hmm. there's all sorts of shenanigans and, you know, people over there, like obviously, I mean that you you'd see everything, right? You get the yeah. full kind of smattering of, of uh, individuals in there, but that was something that leads me to uh, something that I brought up to you the other day, which is pure harmony, and that's a a term that I've just kind of decided to come up with because uh, thinking about this stuff and uh, working with obsidian, what I've found is that when you are using any kind of program that relies on peer support it seems to me that the closer the peers are in lived experience sometimes could be gender vocation age even or kind of where they're at in their their own recovery mm-hmm. can make a huge difference in how relatable those peers are to each other yes so for instance i have a memory of a gentleman that was involved in our program and he was in our our day group so we would have you know when we were working on specific recovery based programs or whatever We'd be in like a group of 12 and every once in a while, this older gentleman would come through. He was there under, basically his family was supporting him financially, I think. And they had, he had a a really, uh, he was having a, a really tough time with alcohol and he didn't want to be there at all. And the only way they could keep him in that facility was to basically tranquilize him like to the point where he did not know he could barely speak you would just basically fall asleep every once in a while as you know we were doing our <laughs> exercises and stuff and to me i get why they would put that guy through there because he's a another person that's a, that's that's paying money to be there or maybe whatever whether it's the family or the healthcare system that's paying it's another mm-hmm. paying customer so i get that part of it but that person being in the same group as other people who are trying to actually figure out what's going on is not helpful. So that would be a, in my mind, an example of some peer disharmony <laughs> to yeah, the extreme. Totally. totally. And yeah, I I don't know if you encountered that in in your program at all, Corey, where you were kind of you had peers that were maybe more relatable, or or how did that work for you?
1: Definitely in the mm. in the inpatient program. I mean, first first of all, um, in terms of harmony, positive harmony. I remember feeling like such a sigh of relief when on the first day I found out that there was another nurse who was there because of hydromorphone. Right, <laughs> like that right. was just like a, like a, oh thank God, <laughs> <laughs> because it made me feel immediately like I could be understood at least by one person. And mm. as it was, I was un- I think I was understood by the group, but. It was really a good thing for me. And I think of on the other side of that spectrum, it, within that group of seven that I was in, uh, there was one individual from law enforcement. And that individual sort of became an outlier in that they were had a very different frame of reference, quite a different style of communication, a different level of willingness to to be vulnerable. And it didn't create disharmony. But I did think for that individual, how much more of a sense of harmony they would probably get from being in a group with other law enforcement people but as it was it kind of worked out i think as best it could have in that scenario but what i also comes to mind is is with online meetings like peer support and, and the smart recovery meetings that they are those are you know our, our caduceus meetings are are closed meetings they are people have to reach out to you and and sort of be brought in so there's some level of control But the smart meetings that are out there, the 12-step meetings that are out there, those are open meetings. Anyone can log in to any meeting and newcomers can log in all the time. And sometimes, not infrequently, you'll have a, a group that's starting to come back and everyone's coming back fairly regularly with week to week. And there's some understanding and there's some harmony happening. People are being vulnerable. And newcomers can come in sometimes just at no fault of their own with a very different frame of reference with a very different state of mental health or style of communication. And it can, it can really, like, I've seen it happen where it can just like within 10 minutes, close people off Mm -hmm. and people can go from where you think, oh, the last two meetings that, that person was really talking and they were, they were sharing and they were just like, you could see this, the, the gains that they were making maybe. And then someone comes in who's, might sound critical or might sound judgmental or just creates a, a feeling of unsafety in the meeting and it can just totally shift it.
0: The trust bridges it, all get burnt immediately and they're hard to rebuild.
1: Very hard. And then, so then exactly. Then to say to the person who has just been so courageous and and vulnerable and opened up and then they kind of back off again to try to say, no, no, it's okay. You can, you can still share here. Part of that has to be is, is dependent on the facilitator, I think, and keeping that space safe. Sure. Um, But part of it is just the the nature of, of having open, open meetings and having, or or an inpatient program where people come and go and people are at different stages of, of life. It's a really, I mean, for lack of a better word, it's just an interesting thing to observe how that can change a group dynamic.
0: Yeah, well, it it sure does. Uh, bringing up the RCMP group member there is uh, that's a great example. I've had a couple RCMP group members in Obsidian, and you know, great guys uh, with uh, very different, very different bases of uh, like their history is way different. The things they've been through is way different, and uh, their culture. There's a culture there in that vocation that is just very different. Yeah, and it doesn't really. I think it's really hard for them to kind of relate to specifically. I mean, there's a little bit of a, maybe with, uh, with nurses and uh, first responders, there's a little bit of an understanding there, but it's, it, it, it just, it's another kind of bridge to cross. So I guess in a perfect world, or if you had the, uh, the facility that uh, had the resources to be, to be that specialized, it would be something where you would be watching people come in and be like, okay, all right, we got, you know, this this person, this background, this level of education, maybe their their age, gender, whatever. I and there's arguments to be made about the gender thing, but I think there's there is a very real aspect to putting people together who are kind of trying to accomplish the same thing with the same background or at least as close to it as possible.
1: Yeah, totally agree Nathan. And I I think there's also something to be said as we know in your obsidian meetings that there's a lot to be gained from controlling the group size. And in the smart community one of the things that's happened within the last um maybe 6 or 9 months is that with my particular community that I was attending was growing so large that that we that facilitators were added so I would take half the group or sometimes a third of the group and then the other facilitator or facilitators would take the other ones so that group size was kept to like 10 or 12 people max mm. max. Yeah. And and that creates harmony. That creates safety. I remember, you know, just for kicks early on, when I was doing the inpatient program, the facilitator wanted us, we had to attend a meeting every day. And so my smart meetings didn't run every day. So I would attend 12 step meetings just for the sake of signing off, saying that I attended a meeting. And I remember Mm -hmm. just for kicks, I attended like a Hollywood, California meeting (laughs) and just to see what it was like. And there were like 85 people in the room. (laughs) In the, in the zoom meeting, in the zoom session. And I thought like, how, how could this be productive? How (laughs) there's 85 people in a zoom meeting. There's no
0: safety in that. There's no, there's no support either. I found that, uh, it's online and I don't know, I've been, I went to a Caduceus meeting where there was like, uh, I don't know, there had to be 50 people and it was a disaster. I like a full blown disaster. Yeah, It's just, I really, I believe that the limit has to be 12 uh, in, under all circumstances, but especially online, like even yeah. 10, because if you, there's a, I think there's a period of time too, where people, you know, they run out of glucose, they're just, they they don't have the time <laughs> and you always get that. It's like 50 minutes is about the max people are willing to really engage in general. Lots of times they'll go longer, but mm-hmm. I mean, th- That caduceus meeting over East there was, was scheduled for three hours, three hours, man. Oh my God. Wow. What in the, I mean, I, yeah, I I don't know. It was uh, one of the craziest things I've ever seen. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) The other thing in general for treatment facilities is how they treat their patients or how they, uh, what the reputation is for treating patients. So are they treating people with respect and dignity in general? And the other thing that I think people need to be aware of is what the facility's protocol is for removing a patient because uh, lots of them are not accountable for what happens to a patient when they kick them out of their program. So if for whatever reason they don't like what a patient's doing and that can be a very, you know, it could be as minimal as not agreeing with uh, whatever recovery program they're offering there, if they remove somebody, they they basically will call you a cab, and that's it. Or sometimes just put you outside. <laughs> and this is uh, we've talked about the dangers of being in a treatment facility and not having any kind of drugs in your system, and then being removed and all of a sudden having mm-hmm. access. And what a huge uh, increase in overdose death uh, rates totally occur from that. So you know, I've I've seen people where they've been removed and, uh, without a concern in the world, as if they're, they just kind of dust off their, you know, it's like, okay, you're, you're gone. That's it. We're not having anything else to do with you. And I think there needs to be some, there needs to be measures in place to make sure that at least the, the family members are aware of what's going on. There should be some kind of protocol in place to make sure that those people are getting back to a stable environment. That is my belief. Yeah so Definitely. whether or not the, the facility is responsible for that and accountable that's something that should be looked into yeah and then amenities what do you think about uh, the importance of amenities is that a big deal is it a deal at all
1: well i think it's a, it, it's a tell like it mm-hmm. it kind of shows um i mean first of all let's assume if are these amenities kept up and kept clean and kept functional because if they're not then that's a whole other whole other story and a sign of of neglect or a lack of care within the program. But this is a place, if it's an inpatient facility that you're going to be spending all of your time. And those are the things that can keep you sane and can keep you productive, can keep you, keep your mind clear and and remove some stress of, of the day. And can be really valuable, but also show that the facility has a holistic approach or has patient, you know, the quality of care in mind.
0: Yeah, I recommend that people, when they're investigating a facility, see what they're offering online, and then call and make sure that those facilities are actually available. And if they are available, ask when they're available, because sometimes you'll you'll see a a treatment center advertising a a bunch of different facilities, and you get there and you're like, oh, you know what, the sauna hasn't been working for six months, or (laughs) "Ah, the gym's only open two hours a day, or you know, so that can. I mean, for me, I, like exercise is, that's part of my mental health routine. If I can't, I need to be able to do something and all the treatment in the world is not going to help if I don't have some kind of physical outlet. So that's uh, that's important. Um, and then there's there's other things that I think are, are worth, some things that I've seen that everybody talks about being helpful, like access to like a team sport. Like lots of people love the volleyball at yes. <laughs> you know, Everybody talks about that. Access to nature. Like what kind of, are you going to a facility where you're in the middle of nowhere and you've, you've got, uh, you're surrounded by pristine mountains or are you going into the middle of a city? Or, you know, I mean, that's for some people, nature is very important. I think it's important for us all at least a little bit. And then there's uh, other things that may have significant value depending on the individual, like uh, equine therapy and uh, art therapy or access to like any kind of therapy, uh, animal really like, uh, yeah, I think they have in the States, they've got like, basically where you get assigned, uh, you can get assigned a goat or a dog or <laughs> all sorts of interesting <laughs> programs like that's that, right. but, it's, but it's cool. You know, I, I think that there's, you can form a little bond with an animal like that and yeah. And that's helpful. And then we talked about, uh, food quality. Uh, that is something that I think, I mean, you got to have at least a basic level of, nutrition being offered and then what's the access? Like is the is breakfast at six to seven a.m and then the doors closed? You know, what's the that's something that should be looked at too. Yeah. And then we go on to look at program variables. So what we see in the literature tends to be evidence supporting a 90 day stay in a facility, whether or whether you're doing inpatient, outpatient, the total duration that does seem to have some kind of impact is 90 days or more. So that should be kept in mind. I know the majority of the programs offered across Canada tend to be, uh, they'll they'll go detox till uh, up to 90 days and then uh, aftercare of some sort is offered, but mm-hmm. aftercare is really pretty minor. I think depending on the individual, if you're serious about making a change, and you're motivated, it's probably in your best interest to find a facility where you can kind of get some tools. Uh, and maybe if, if, you, if you feel like you need to be in a different environment for a while, there's nothing wrong with that. But overall, I would recommend based on the evidence, uh, a 90 day total duration. So whether that's some inpatient, some outpatient, whatever, that's, that should be your minimum kind of time to clear your head.
1: Yeah. Now for, for mandated programs right now, mandated inpatient programs, they're not though, are they?
0: No, none are, are mandated that no. long. No. So they tend to be like uh, usually around uh, a month. Some of them are a little over a month. There's some seven weeks and 45 days, but yeah, you know, and the, 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 I think the, the idea there is that we'll get you over kind of uh, do a, although for healthcare professionals, most people are they don't go in under a detox situation, which is very different. Yeah. Because if you need to detox before you even start, then it's gotta be 90 days, probably inpatient minimum, I would say. Like I was, I mean, I didn't go in addicted to opiates. I was past that already.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: So yeah, that's that's something to look into, um, something to talk to your addiction specialist about. And then um aftercare should be investigated. You know, what, what do they mean by aftercare? Cause they're going to, all of them will advertise it, but you know, is that you're given a contact list of alumni who've graduated the program and expected to reach out to them? You know, what is the, what is the yeah. actual aftercare?
1: It might just be that. Yeah, you're right. Mm-hmm.
0: So that's uh, that's an area where you can see some difference in quality. And then uh, something that we've talked about before that doesn't seem to happen as much as it should is the measuring of treatment outcomes both while in the program, you know, yeah, like a facility should know how many people are dropping out. That should be a number that's available to the public.
1: Yes, it should be. And
0: and I don't know if, if any of them would offer that up. And if they would, I don't know if you'd you'd get the honest answer. I mean, I think in general, it's a, it's like a 50% for a a 35 day program or something, 50% dropout rate, Mm -hmm. um, that's just everybody who, you know, like a, that would be just an amalgamation of everybody who's trying to uh, go to a government funded program. But what would be nice is if they they gave you some numbers as part of aftercare, I think it would be great if if there was like a maybe even a quarterly check-in with a patient just for a year. Yeah, you know that would be great. I just see, okay, how many people got out and and did well? uh, for at least a year. And what did those people do that the other people didn't, you know, mm-hmm. that would be a start, right? Yeah. I was, I was
1: told at the time, uh, that I would receive one year follow-up. Like, a I I think with a, like a survey, like, do I agree to be given a survey and talk to someone one year post outpatient? Mm-hmm. Didn't hear, didn't hear. <laughs> <laughs>
0: right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So it, it does make you wonder, I mean, if that effort is being made, then who, you know, what data is actually being collected and then what data is on purpose, not being collected, you know, it's a, uh, it all needs an overhaul. The entire industry needs an overhaul in that regard. There's got to be yeah. some regulation brought in.
1: Yeah. And it's a tough one because it, it, those numbers can seem discouraging. They can seem like a deterrent. Um, but in any other service, like if you were going in for, surgery you'd expect that the doctor would say there's a 75 percent success rate of this surgery Mm -hmm. and there it's just again it's the lack of transparency
0: of course yeah 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 i mean you'd hope to be able to have uh, even if the information is bad it's better than not having any information and uh because if you don't have the if you don't have a marker to start with then how can you ever improve and that's that's kind of that's probably one of the bigger problems with the entire industry, right? It's
1: yeah, a... yeah. And it might, having that information might allow for some some individuals, maybe not all, but some individuals may be able to say, okay, I really need to rally the troops after I get out of here. I need to have mm-hmm. my, need to have some order, need to have some structure, need to change my housing, need to whatever, e- knowing that there's risk there, knowing that there's, mm-hmm vulnerability when you finish finished the program and that st- statistically that risk exists.
0: Yeah. And knowing what, uh, what factors were involved, like, even if there was uh, say it was a horrific, uh, you know, uh, 25%, uh, uh, stayed away from their drug of choice at the one year mark. Okay. Well, what happened to the rest? Like, tell yeah. me why, what, <laughs> what did they do wrong? So we can try to avoid that. You know, any information <laughs> is good. Mm-hmm. <laughs> As long as it's genuine. Yeah, of course. uh, Most of the bigger facilities will have some sort of treatments offered for the more commonly associated comorbid conditions, PTSD being a big one. Mm -hmm. Uh, You'll see lots of eating disorders, um, anything related to uh, that you see show up with addiction. It's good if a program has at least a stream available for those people to get some kind of time with their peers again peers who have a similar background and also some information regarding how it plays into you know if they do have a if they're having problems with substance use then there's often a lot of overlay in that whatever the mental health condition is so yeah um, that's good good information to have and if you've got a reputable mental health Avenue open in a facility that's a good thing to see so we can look for that inpatient versus outpatient I don't know I guess if you if you've got a real environmental situation on your hands in our situation our environment was our job so yeah it was much easier for us to be removed from that environment and therefore lower the risk of of having problems but if your environment is your neighborhood then it might help to go far far away yeah. and I think there's at least you know a uh, a geographical solution can be a solution if, if the idea is to clear your head and sometimes that, well, not sometimes that's you, you've got to have at least some period of time where you're giving your brain and nervous system a chance to recover. So if that's what it takes, then maybe inpatient is what you're going to need. I guess if you're highly motivated, outpatient could work, but if you're, and maybe if you're being monitored, right? If you're doing random urine drug screens and you are motivated to do that, but, uh, I don't know. What are your thoughts on that?
1: Yeah, which is how it was for me. And I know for for the stream I was in, it was healthcare professionals. I think all of us were being monitored um, in that program. And all all of us exhibited a strong family support network and strong, just various reasons for why it could work. And for myself, like my home environment, my neighborhood, you know, the fact that I've got a sibling who lives very, very close to me. Those things didn't prevent me from going down the path that I went down. But once I left the environment of work, came out with my story, rallied rallied the support, those things did help me facilitate a, a more healing environment in my home. And then I think it helped the outpatient work. I mean, in my mind, I just wasn't going to go to inpatient. That was just, that was my line in the sand.
0: Yeah. And, the, and the I said kids- that. Having kids is a big factor for people who who usually are are adamant about that, right? Yeah, and right rightfully so. But if yeah, I think if if you're motivated and you're in an outpatient program where you're being monitored like that, I mean, it's only going to help to have to have your family there. I right? like that was I mean one of the biggest problems with being on the other side of the country for me was that I didn't. I mean, I was very far removed from yeah all my support people. Yeah. Oh, so, I mean, uh, it's uh, yeah, yeah. Positives and negatives, I guess, to that one. Yeah, for sure. And uh, we touched on cost. I mean, that's going to be right now. There's probably fairly significant wait list to get in if you're just trying to get in, uh, you know, through public health. I haven't looked in a while, so I don't know what the, I know they're most of the the bigger facilities have to keep a couple beds open for people who are coming through that way. But I don't know what the wait list is. Probably months.
1: Yeah, and you know the other thing I was going to say, Nathan, is that within facilities that have more publicly funded beds, at least so there's one in the Fraser Valley here that comes to mind for me—a men's facility—is that there are a lot of individuals who are awaiting trial or who have been who have been sort of sanctioned to go off to to a treatment program through the court system, and so. If you are a professional or if you, it's just, it creates a very, very mixed bag of, of individuals and, and potentially, I mean, some, some tough facilities, some facilities with that, where it's a really, really mixed population. I just, I want to say that as sensitively as I can, that like, these are not, you know, I, I look at the inpatient facility, inpatient group that I was in as being such a little bubble of all sort of similarly trained, similarly employed people with probably similar socioeconomic backgrounds and similar family supports, et cetera. But some of the public, I think as you go into places with less funding or more public beds government funded, it really becomes a a diverse group, which could be challenging.
0: Yeah, yeah, certainly good. How's that? Uh, just, it's <laughs> a good way of putting it. Yeah, uh, I won't add to that. I think you got it. <laughs> and then uh, the last thing I wanted to touch on was uh, how a program kind of integrates family support. So some are very yeah. good about getting the family involved. They actually offer programs that are designed to support family members and others are, you know, more... They kind of want to. It feels like they want to cut you off and kind of mm-hmm. keep you in and, and uh, limit your contact with the outside world, almost. So I think it's it, it depends on how they're how they're supporting those family members, of course. But I think being open to facilitating the integration of family along with the the treatment program is a is a positive thing.
1: Oh yeah, I couldn't agree more. Like how beneficial or therapeutic is it going to be, if you are trying to break all these habits and establish new neural pathways and change your behaviors. And if you have family members who are back where you were a year ago, who haven't learned along with you, you know, one of the most beneficial things I think for me was being able, because it was outpatient, being able to go back and talk to my family and my circle about things that needed to be talked about, things that came mm-hmm. up for me, where I was like, Hey, what about, what about this, yeah. whether it was like, like stuff from my past or just like dynamics of our relationships that I wanted to talk about that really was helpful and it didn't fix everything, but if I was like left to my own devices and then, and isolated and then coming back into all those relationships with like a list of things <laughs> that I wanted to change about family dynamics, etc., I can imagine that being a lot harder than being able to do it live or, or yeah. close to live.
0: Yeah, you'd want to be able to address those things in real time. Yeah. That's a significant benefit to outpatient that I didn't think of because, I mean, even if, like, when you're in inpatient and even if you have access to, uh, like, a, a certain amount of time when you could be on the phone or the computer, it's still not it's not it's real time. Like, it's not something comes into your head and you pick up the phone and be like, hey, oh, what about this thing? Or, And, yeah. uh, I mean, yeah, that would be, what do you make a big list of those things and try to tackle it later. That's going to be a <laughs> <Yeah>. wild situation. <laughs> yeah. But can you think of anything else that we we missed there other than we're we're assuming that you're going to go to a medication-assisted facility? I, I don't consider anything that's not medication-assisted to be a treatment facility. Um, yeah. Would that be fair to say?
1: Yeah, that's fair. You know, the other thing I was going to say is that like in looking at reviews, like very, very tough to kind of collate all the reviews that you find online and make sense of them. Looking, doing a Google search and and finding reviews there, you tend to find (laughs) reviews of a certain persuasion, some hostility, some negative reviews, not entirely, but greatly. Um, (laughs) But there are other forums, you know, looking on Reddit and looking on other forums online where you can find a bit more of a a bit more thoughtful reviews, thoughtful discussions, some back and forth about people who went Mm. and spent time in those facilities. I would check out both those avenues because it's, it's it's some, for some facilities, just looking at what Google says, it can be pretty discouraging.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Because they'll have, they'll have cleaning services on there too, right? That too. if you see a facility that's like, I mean, red flags be like boasting a 90% recovery rate. And then you look at the <laughs> Google reviews and it's all five stars in the first 15 or, oh it changed my life. Yeah. yeah. Don't don't go there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, go, go to Reddit and find out what's actually going on there. Yeah, yeah. But uh, yeah, I think that that's a good summation for now. If we think anything else, we'll relay it along. I think so too. I guess the last thing I would say is
1: like, Keep your ears open for p- people who are in meetings, and if you're attending meetings early on, and if you're attending meetings that are semi-local, you can often get little um, pearls about places and and some really strong um, recommendations and ideas about places that that work for some people. And there's people within recovery meetings uh, in the community where you can send them a message and say, "Hey, I want to be able to talk to you a little bit more about." facility x and what you actually thought about it that might be Mm -hmm. one of your your best routes to to go
0: yeah yeah for sure uh i I would caution grain of salt there too just uh make sure you talk to more than one person if you can (laughs) because you're gonna get you could find two people went to the same place at the same time and one will hate it and the other it saved their life so yeah of course yeah all right Corey. i think we'll leave it there good to see you back in action Thank you. You too. And uh, we'll talk to everybody later. Sounds good. See you. See you soon.